The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the third chapter. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more the amount prescribed to you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the one who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. The Gospel of the Lord. Don't you feel that shiver of fear running down your spine when you hear John the Baptist proclaiming in the wilderness? With all the fire and brimstone of a sermon worthy of Jonathan Edwards, that New England colonial preacher who carried so much wrath uh, and exhortation about an angry God, John the Baptist also carries this fiery furnace of wrath with vivid and morbid detail. And that kind of insight into God's nature really does scare you. So coming into these raw words, we are a people of faith who come seeking the presence of God, hungry and open, like those people who went out to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist. Our hearts pull desperately as we want to see and know God in the world. And the expectation lives on our hearts, and those questions are burning. We stepped into the scriptures today, swirling with imagery of the Hebrew Bible, the prophetic imagination standing before us in flesh and blood of John the Baptist, and the symbols and the promises and the language pouring out through the whole scripture. But it's a harsh and wild reality. And there's dissonance in this scripture and in this season. So we want to see and know all the beauty of God and all the love of this season and revel in the candlelight of Advent that warms us up and makes us so comfortable and cozy. And John the Baptist really is anything but comfortable and cozy. With all the love of rejoicing in our scriptures today, for after all, this is the Gaudate Sunday, the candle we light of joy. And here are other places of rejoicing in our lectionary scriptures. 
there's a great rupture with John the Baptist. There is so much dissonance. And I think it's a similar kind of dissonance maybe when we sing the kind of chorus in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and the rejoice, rejoice, and the promise that Emmanuel shall come. But it's a modal and minor complicated language. With all the other scriptures that celebrate rejoicing, I think John emerges to rattle the faithful people with scary good news. The axe is lying at the root of the tree. The wrath of God is coming. The winnowing fork will separate the chaff from the grain. And the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And don't forget, we kick it all off with you brood of vipers. Today, I don't want to water down this scripture or to tame John or make him more palatable. I want to stay with what makes us super uncomfortable about John the Baptist and his words, what really provokes us in this season, and to name what really we are frightened of. The way the German Lutheran theologian and pastor Bonhoeffer puts it is this, we have become so accustomed to the idea of a divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. The God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. The coming of God is truly not only glad tidings, but first of all, frightening news for everyone who has a conscience. I think John the Baptist would know this as seriously as anyone. Because when you preach a life worthy of repentance, when you stand on the banks of the Jordan River, preaching the kind of change that your life depends on with God, you find yourself facing the real consequences, the life-altering, life-changing consequences. It's not easy living a life that bears fruit worthy of repentance but it should be and it is incredibly challenging. And while I love the kind of preparation of this season, as sweet and lovely as it is to decorate my home for Christmas and prepare for the God with us in a sweet traditional way, it doesn't provoke me so much into the actual change of ways I care about for other people. And it doesn't really provoke me to hear a challenge of changing my life that will bear fruits worthy of repentance. I think the question is this, that we can plant right now, is what will increase my compassion this next year? And how am re- I really preparing my life to live with God really and truly present? It's a task for every person and a task that isn't easy, but I think we can rise to the challenge. And sometimes as hard as it was uh, to be in a master class when I played cello, um, It was those teachers who really provoked me, who saw more and expected more and pushed a little bit more, who saw that it was possible, even when I couldn't yet see for myself. The true question of what it means to live a life that cultivates the kind of relationship with others that helps all people thrive is at the heart of this passage. What kind of life really do I live that embodies that kind of bearing fruit? I love the specificity of the people listening to John the Baptist in the wilderness, the people asking questions and seeking God. And John sends them right back into the world, back into the heart of the matter of their lives. He says, give out of the abundance of your things. Give life that provides for people, your food, your clothing. 
And even for people you might see as your enemies, they're part of this inclusive and expansive vision. Even the tax collectors and the soldiers, even those people who hold positions of power, he calls them into this vision of God with us. And he says to them, stay within the limits of your power. Don't extort people and don't take more than is asked of you. And the revolutionary thing of this is when one person stops operating in a way that holds more power over others, other people can't hold on to power in that same way. For one soldier to stop would mean other soldiers see and people see that this is possible. And for a tax collector to shift that kind of change and changes the whole system around them. So the question of what brings life now, what will bring life? Maybe not immediately will change the world, but it plants those seeds within our realm of possibility. So I think our question today is what are we setting into motion that makes the possibility of life with God realized? With the metaphor of wheat and chaff, I think we get into the heart of it because we're both deeply embedded with goodness in each of us, that spark of divine light that we are. And we also have our own husks of chaff, those anxious, cynical, judgmental, or self-preserving husks. And they might have been protective to us. It's not so much a separation of people who are some uh, chaff and some wheat, but it's a literal whittling away or blowing those dry, scaly, protective casings that aren't of use to us or to God. And it might have served part of us at one point, but in this season of letting go and of preparing, of getting really serious at the heart of the matter, those parts are whittled away. So what do we hold the potential for now? The spark of the divine. I'm drawn to a poet and theologian, Howard Thurman, who writes about what will happen during this Christmas time, especially with lighting candles as a way of seeing God. He says, I will light candles this Christmas, candles of joy, despite all the sadness, candles of hope where despair keeps watch, candles of courage for fears ever present, candles of peace for tempest-tossed days, candles of grace to ease heavy burdens, candles of love to inspire all my living, candles that will burn all year long. And the question, the flame that we kindle now, will become the flame that lights those candles in Christmas and the candles that burn all year long. And so with the fiery words of John the Baptist, we hold on to the love of God that warms us and we ignite now that we hold up and live into. Thanks be to God.